0: Welcome to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Epstein. In this episode, I talk with Anadan Muddy, the George Parker Professor of Finance and Economics at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. She's also the founder and director of the Corporations and Society Initiative at the GSB and a senior fellow at the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research. Anat is an economist with broad cross-disciplinary interests in the interactions between business law and policy, and she's an advocate for better governance and accountability in the private sector and in government. Since 2010, Anat has been active in the policy debate on financial regulations. She's the co-author, with Martin Helwig, of the award-winning and highly acclaimed book The Banker's New Clothes, What's Wrong with Banking and What to Do About It. In 2014, she was named by Time magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world and by Foreign Policy magazine as among 100 global thinkers. As you'll learn after hearing this podcast, Annette does not hold back her opinions on the financial system, so you'll get more than one takeaway out of this conversation. If you like this show, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast with colleagues or friends. You can also subscribe to the Boardroom Governance Newsletter at EvanEpstein.sapstack.com. Anat, it is an enormous pleasure to have you in this podcast. What is going on in your life these days?
1: Well, I am at Stanford uh, on sort of campus. The university has uh, uh, an area here where faculty can buy houses. So I'm in one of those. Uh, but my office is completely locked from mm-hmm. like I'd have to fill forms and get a guard to get me in my office so I can only take something. I can't even sit there. So we are in uh, still uh, uh, at home, uh, certainly for the summer. and. Um, I was supposed to be traveling a lot, and I'm not. So yeah. trip after trip after trip get canceled. On the other hand, I get to uh, be all over the place right from my uh, li- my living room. You are close by relatively, but uh, I just uh, in the last two days I spoke to a few hundred people in Southeast Asia. Uh, who are in central bank and supervision. And then I was in an event in Brussels, Europe yesterday, within 12 hours of that. Both of them were on the 10th because uh, it was Tuesday evening here, Wednesday in in, uh, Malaysia or whatever. And then it was Wednesday morning here, Wednesday evening in Europe.
0: Right. I mean... I guess one silver lining is maybe the future. We're going to do much less traveling and we're going to do much more online and, and you know, we'll, the, the carbon footprint may be lower.
1: <laughs> yes. So that that's good. On the other hand, certain industries uh, that uh, have been living off our travel uh, right. are going to have to f- sort of fig- reconfigure themselves. Uh,
0: yeah. So. Okay so so in the structure of this podcast we're going to first go into your origin story to know more about you and your background your professional academic background and then we'll jump into the corporate governance questions and and also In this podcast, I think we're going to also go back to the, what is the purpose of the corporation, right? So maybe the first question is, tell us more about you and your professorship in in finance economics and everything in in that uh, area.
1: Okay. So I uh, have been at Stanford since the beginning of my career. So that's a long, long time ago. I got to Stanford in January, 1983. So I've been around for a long time and uh I started as a as a theorist in in finance, and I was doing more uh, uh on issues related to how information gets into prices portfolio management so it was more about prices and price dynamics in asset markets and how how prices aggregate information and these kinds of things and how you measure performance of uh, funds so it was more on the investment side than on the corporate side and then I got more interested in uh, more in contracts, more corporate. So I did a little bit on venture capital and on disclosures. Coming into the financial crisis, two thousand and eight, I was never before that really particularly interested in banking uh, as a, as a sector, and uh, but all of a sudden. Uh, the banking system was collapsing and, you know, mortgage uh, were defaulting, which sort of started in 2007, but still it was like, okay, so there was a housing bubble and maybe some people, you know, borrowed too much to buy a house and there'll be some correction. And so, um, you know, it was happening, but it wasn't kind of directly touching my my research. I wasn't doing, you know, mortgage research, housing research, uh, you know, consumer finance research uh, or banking research for that matter. And everything, of course, is in a silo in our profession so so here i am doing sort of corporate governance the uh, standard corporate governance the uh, corporate finance uh research and then uh i started experiencing the crisis like everybody else what was going on you know big bailouts and 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 the central bank which i didn't know and much about you know the fed and what is happening And so i started looking into it and i started trying to connect it to my corporate finance Understanding, you know, what is the same or different about banks as corporations? Are they, is everything we know about corporations all different because banks are special? In what way are banks special? Because they are corporations these days. You know, they used to be partnerships, so they, you know, there are some public sector banks, but most banks that we have, both small and certainly the bank holding companies, are just you know, corporations and multinational corporations, too. So how, what happens to their governance and what happens to their uh, purpose and why are they regulated this way or that way? And why did they implode and cause so much harm to the whole global economy from a few defaults? I mean, you know, I'm in Silicon Valley and we had, you know, internet bubble burst or things. of that sort of didn't take down the whole world. It was was a lot of companies died and a lot of stock options became useless and all of that. But, um, okay, we had a lot of hopes for the internet. It it came to maybe, you know, a lot, but not what people thought about maybe in the late 90s. And so, uh, you know, there was a collapse of internet-related prices in the early 2000s and uh, the world moved on. You know, it wasn't, there was a lot more Paper loss in terms of stock value losses in that in that collapse, and then then losses from mortgage defaults uh, mm-hmm. in, in 2008. And yet, you know, the global financial system came to near implosion, and governments all over the world uh, and central banks came to the rescue to the tune of you know hundreds of billions, if not trillions, of of you know cheap loans and and bailout money directly and all kinds of things. So it was like, what is going on? I, you know, in my own model of the world, that wouldn't happen. Like what I, I was teaching my students it's a wonderful system after all, you know, the whole financial system in general, and of course these are intermediaries that are active in this financial system well you know they intermediate how risk is you know how saving is done some people want to save some people want to borrow you know money over time we were teaching them how wonderful i think the financial system was uh was how much great a value it was adding to the economy how it was enabling you know investments and and things to happen uh, that we want and so you know it's not just a casino it's a productive thing that we're doing there by allocating the money Uh, to the right places, helping diversification, risk sharing, that's kind of, uh, you know, the foundations of finance, spread the risk around, even securitization, all that spreading the risk around is a wonderful thing. Lowers the cost of capital, the cost of funding, and uh, the world is better for it. And um, and that's how we, we merely went along. So the more I started looking then at the financial sector and at banking, the more it was like, whoa, that is something really, weird about this industry. They say really strange things about banking. It's, you know, special, but only that special. And, you know, in the end, they're special in literally what they get away with is sort of what they're special at and how awful shareholder governance works in banking for the world. Because we were basically on the Milton Friedman classic line, you know, that if you maximize stock price or however you translate, you know, make as much money as possible subject to the laws, that that's your social co- that's your social responsibility as of the manager. This is a classic Milton Friedman 1970 uh, line. Uh, don't talk to them about corporate social responsibility because, uh, you know, it would bring back the, the government bureaucrats, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. that kind of anti-government talk. And underneath it is this assumption that we never give thought to that the rules of the game uh, are the right rules
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that um, if you play by those rules and you do your thing, then the invisible hand makes it all work. And, right. all and, the and, side, and that was not what I saw in banking.
0: Right. And and, wh- and I remember, you know, one of the things that you've, you know, campaigned about is, is how low the equity is in the banking system, which, and how leverage kind of compounded everything and and the incentives are completely out of whack. So maybe tell us about that equity side Uh, on banking.
1: Oh, my God. I mean, this was just like, the the, I fell in a rabbit hole. I couldn't even believe it. You know, I opened a, a... As I looked into it, I was reading, you know, things in the newspaper that were really confusing, like they're using the word capital for equity, and they're confusing the two sides of a balance sheet. They talk about set aside and hold. Even today, they talk about freeing up capital like it's in a cage. We're talking about equity funding that all companies live on, and people in venture capital, you know, in the the Bay Area never bother to borrow, and they just fund with equity-like instruments. So what's wrong with equity for banks? They can make loans with it. Why do they have to fund everything with deposits and other debts, mountains and mountains of debt? They have virtually no no equity. I mean, they live life as zombies all the time. I mean, they live life. Insolvency is the state of mind in banking. If people from the rest of the corporate world looked into banking, they would be shocked because in banking, you don't even, you barely need, business model, because the money just walks in the door. If you think of deposit, when they come in to give you money, they don't even view themselves as creditors. Yet, they are unsecured creditors who don't behave like creditors. And that can allow, you know, I wrote a book called The Banker's New Clothes, What's Wrong with Banking, What to Do About It. It shows these sort of naked people walking and they cover like a New Yorker cartoon. And it's like the emperors are naked. I mean, Imagine that the CEO, ex-CEO of Wells Fargo Bank, which is my bank, I came to this area, that's the bank with a carriage, you know, in the, in the Stanford mm-hmm. campus, you know, i deposit my, my my paycheck, still goes to Wells Fargo, this really reckless institution with the image of, you know, used to be at least the image of, of this, uh, this hometown spun, you know, little bank uh, with the carriage. I mean, stomp who presided over these account scandals and all that, and we can get to conduct, which is sort of my focus right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, He said in a debate, and again, there are a lot of details to that debate, but I was very deeply involved in this debate and still am. Uh, He said, we in Wells Fargo, listen carefully to this. Uh, We in Wells Fargo, we have a lot of uh, uh, self-funding, he called it, with retail deposits. Now listen very carefully to the next statement. And therefore, we don't have a lot of debt. <laughs> Can you even make this up? I mean, I can't make this up. He said this to an interviewer. It was in the front page of the Financial Times. This was a reporter of the Financial Times who didn't study any economics and doesn't know anything about a balance sheet. And I taught him what a balance sheet of a bank is. Okay, here is the liability side, is deposits. They do owe that money. Some forgot he owes me my deposit. OK, now, why did he forget? Because it, it doesn't feel like that to him. That's why. So if that mindset, the deposit money is like play money. And if you only sort of throw enough sand in the regulator's eyes, they're going to let you do all kinds of things with it, with almost no equity on top of it to back it up and let the FDIC and all the other people worry about it when you get in trouble, in real trouble. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, in banking, you can be insolvent for Ever if you don't default, because a lot of people leave a lot of balances and deposits and they don't come for them. And if you can roll that, and then if you can take the rest of the assets and give them as collateral and you got your repos, you can build it to the stratosphere. And if you're too big to fail and then you have derivatives of balance sheet and all of that, you can be trillions of dollars of assets. Trillions. Do you know how big that is? I mean, trillions is huge. I mean, a, a mountain of a $100 bill, trillion, $1 trillion, is. 680, km, uh, 680 miles high, okay? In other words, a trillion seconds is 32,000 years. This is how much. Now, J.P. Morgan Chase on balance sheet by gap, has $2.5 trillion of assets. That's just on balance sheet. Now, off balance sheet of banking is more because they have a lot of loan commitment, but they have a lot of netted derivatives that even on IFRS accounting standards would count all the way to like $4 trillion. That's like the Fed, you know, after the financial crisis. That is unfathomable. No Maybe. company gets this big. Now, why do they get so big and so monstrous? Because they can. Because they, because they keep having ways to fund. Because if you give us collateral, every, and then the collateral in the context of the law, you'd appreciate is exempt from bankruptcy. So it's got these safe harbor exemption. That means that everybody can walk off with the asset. So it's a repo. That's not a secured debt. That means that you sold the collateral to the lender mm-hmm. and then yeah. you promise to buy it back. Well, if you don't buy it back, so if you were sort of to default on this secured debt, he doesn't have to wait online in bankruptcy court and figure out that you already committed this asset. So I mean, he walks away with the asset. So, So nobody cares about your entire risk and where they stand because the depositors are trusting the deposit insurance and all the others have, you know, are secured in short term. And they think they'll get their money out before any trouble. And so all of a sudden you've got these weird balance sheets that don't resemble anything else in the entire thing. And here are supposedly the people who are free market, you know, and they couldn't live a minute in markets. They couldn't. Their their entire existence is only because they have so many safety nets that nobody else in the economy is entitled to. To the extent that there are industries out there, then I know that everybody needs a bank, so nobody would dare a Jamie Dimon or somebody like that, mm-hmm. okay? Because they have so much power in our society, in our economy, but they get away with it. And it is amazing that all of us are letting this happen because the regulators are failing so miserably. And they're so used to failing that they, they sort of perpetuate their failure all the time. So I've been in, so I can <laughs> speak to that for hours. And I've I know. been in this debate for, since 2010 at least. And I know that I'm right because people from within the regulators and throughout the system, including inside the private institutions, know that
0: i'm right so so let me ask you this question because i i you know i remember when when i was at stanford already in this financial crisis you were talking about this uh and 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 you wrote this book and a lot of discussion about the financial crisis and how mm-hmm. banking and financial institution was you know over leveraged yep. what has changed in <laughs> 10 years right like are we are we in the worst situation i oh. mean what, 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 what? It's, it's a
1: disaster i mean you know i was giving a lot of talks at the 10-year mark to the crisis mm-hmm. and i was quoting jamie Dimon, who you know by the way i communicate with and never mind, never mind that. Uh, Saying to the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission who Wait a minute. Friend, that,
0: that, that is interesting that you communicate. No, that's with what,
1: that's it's a private communication. Okay, okay, Recently, okay. It was I had to I Scott they had to ask, but, but go ahead. Uh, really, uh, in any case, you know, he's trying to be a good guy. He wrote the, the business roundtable thing. We can get there yeah. uh, about how they care about all the stakeholders. But anyway, no, let me just say, he told the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission, whose records lie in the Stanford Library, yeah. Law School Library, as you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he told them that his daughter, uh, this is a quote, in the, uh, you can find it, Uh his daughter asked him, what's a financial crisis? And he said to her, you know, it's, it, without trying to be funny, he told her, honey, it's something that happens. I don't know if he said honey. Something that happens every three, five, seven, or 10 years. So 10 was like his mat, meaning we were due for one. And so my slides, I sort of said, well, where would it come from? Will it be you know, from Europe, from China, or from cybersecurity? I was most concerned about cybersecurity. So, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and I think there are a lot of, you know, hacks lurking that we don't know about. They hacked the New York what Fed, you know. And so I was worried about some shock mm-hmm. from some cyber space. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, who knows where it's going to come from? That's exactly where we say, oh, we couldn't see it coming. OK, so something will happen and shake up this fragile system. And now, of course, I don't I can I could remove that slide. So in talks I was giving in the last few months, including, you know, days ago to Southeast Asian central thinkers and all of that, I didn't have to say where the next crisis is coming right. from, because the next crisis is coming from an implosion of corporate debt in general, even beyond market leveraged loans and all of that, building up CLOs instead of CDOs, collateralized loan obligations, again, securitization of a lot of loans, and a huge shock to everybody, COVID-19. So we are uh, you know, this yesterday morning, Frank noy published in the Atlantic, you know, will the banking system implode?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We are going to have, you know, zombies everywhere. And we're sort of staving off all these corporate re- bankrupt bankruptcies, um, you know, a couple of which are happening. But otherwise, we're kind of all in this major forbearance uh, all over the place. And. Um, And the banks themselves are, you know, because it wasn't their fault that we had COVID-19, they're like actually almost the beneficiaries, but they are sitting on potentially a lot of losses. I mean, if you look at... You know, office building rents and all kinds of things in the economy that are going to lead to a lot of defaults throughout. I mean, if you think about it, the economy is built on debt, on commitments. It's not necessarily in the standard debt way, but it's the rent due. It's it's all kinds of legal promises, and uh, people are defaulting on promises that they made. They have, all contracts have to be renegotiated in throughout the economy because the shock of the COVID, which is still playing out, you know, has caused everything to shut down, and is going to cause everything to change. And so when it changes, when the dust begins to settle even, which will take a while, and even that other financial crisis was really brewing through 2007-8. Obviously, it started in summer 2007. You know, the spring started... 2007 brought some defaults. Summer 2007 brought some instability. March 2008 was Bear Stearns, and only September 2008 is when everybody woke up to mm-hmm. to a major catastrophe. Now they're afraid of Lehman moment, so they're afraid of these dominoes falling and all of that. And that fear played out in Europe in the Greek crisis and other. Uh, Re, sort of remaining prices where Europe never quite recovered uh, and kept a, a very weak financial system, here in the U.S., they say, oh, the system has been so much stronger. B.S. Sorry. It's not true. It's not true. Because what they, when they declared victory, it was on the basis of measures that I don't trust at all. Mm-hmm. It's the basis of stresses that I don't trust at all. You know, I have my own stress as my stresses are in markets, you know, raise equity, retain earnings. We'll see what, you know, what happens to your stock price. The more you hate equity, the more I know you have too little of it. I mean, it's just a my diagnostics, okay, of, of, of highly distressed leveraged companies that just persist that they would have been in fraudulent conveyance for taking dividend out if they were a normal company. The creditors wouldn't let it, okay? In markets, they wouldn't be able to do what they are doing. Instead, what they're telling you is that now have, this, have all these clever words, cocos and TLAX and all of that. In other words, instead of putting straight equity that would automatically absorb losses, they put in this debt that would magically convert to equity. But that debt, that's basically like junior debt everywhere else. It's just unsecured debt. And somebody would have to trigger it, getting losses. Well, here we are. We have a crisis. You have banks that have become zombies before that. Take Deutsche Bank. I mean, that's your classic zombie right now. And it's been a zombie. It's closing in New York. It's it's a massive criminal corporation that has violations from here to nowhere on their conduct. And, uh, you know, there's a book recently called um, Dark Towers. David Enrich, I just hosted him here at Stanford. On the conduct and on, you know, they had Donald Trump things. Now they have Larry Epstein thing. I mean, they are like, you know, really... Uh, you know, ever since they bought Banker's Trust, that Deutsche Bank, you know, is like a disaster. Uh, they gambled for a long time. It worked for them, 25% ROE, whatever. Anyway, but it's, it's a zombie It's still paying the, the cocos, 6%. I mean, it's, nobody's triggering any, any haircut on any creditor. Uh, it would have to be a failure of a real resolution, bankruptcy, something, of one of these. And nobody will trigger that because it's all—so that so, so it's nonsense. The system has changed very little. A lot of the risk is hidden off balance sheet now by an INF paper is more than 2007, off balance sheet funding in banking. So the system has changed very little. What they flound is meaningless.
0: Hmm. And And so how do you justify what is happening in in the equity markets today where the stock prices are so high. I mean, the record prices, maybe particularly Silicon Valley companies and maybe tech, but, you know, the contrast and inequality, right? The economy is collapsing. The numbers are, you know, unemployment are record. And suddenly you have equity prices that are off the roof.
1: So I'll explain. Uh, there are a few elements to this. First of all, you know, the trends on uh, on public versus private companies have uh, have played here because the stock market really represents a very a, sort of a small fraction of the economy. I mean, small businesses employ, uh, have employed at least, uh, did employ, you know, a large fraction of the population, but they're not in the stock market. Sometimes they're owned by public companies, but they, overall, uh, there's been a huge increase in private funds funding uh, away from the exchanges. And, and, and you know, people say, oh, you know, <laughs> they spin it like, you know, disclosure requirements are so tough on public companies. And therefore, you know, when it, so there are a few elements in why private equity, private market has, has become so big. Uh, part of it is their own disclosure requirements are way too too little, so you know we got to have the SEC and disclosure requirements because there was a lot of fraud leading up to the Great Depression, to the stock market crash of nineteen twenty nine. Of 1929. In other words, we're here having any uh, audited disclosures or any disclosures at all because there was a lot of fraud, um, you know, in the in the uh, Roaring Twenties. I mean, you know, we we so now we're kind of sliding back into no uh into opacity okay so the opacity can be you know theranos like okay filled with fraud uh that only harms these rich investors and they took it in the chin and now let's you know they're suing or whatever but okay their money got eaten up they allowed uh, poor governance in in theranos clearly and um, now, of course, Silicon Valley has some companies that are, have very uh, strong market power, network uh, externalities. You got your Google and and uh, and um, and uh, uh, Facebook and and all these companies, and they have taken over sectors, uh, you know, of advertising and other and other things. So they have their own, uh, you know power, economic power, and, and and all of that. So that power is some of the stock market thing. The other thing is, of course, that uh, there's a lot of uh, propping up that goes on and a lot of money in general uh, slushing around. So it's sort of this, uh, it's called the saving glut of the rich. They just, money has to find places. And with the dollar being the, the prime uh, currency, the money of the whole world almost, is finding, finding its way uh, to the New York uh, Stock Exchange, to, to, to the stock market, the U.S., and, and they get detached from the rest of the economy. So they live in their own little bubble, uh, feeding off both unbelievable supports from the Fed, propping up. When they prop up the, the corporate debt market, they're propping up the equity markets. Uh, you know, you have a binge of borrowing by corporations. I mean, we're talking Altria. We're talking companies that were on the brink of the fog being supported by massive Fed buying programs. I mean, there is no more sense. Of markets, really, when the Fed as a huge player is just going on shopping sprees and having asset buying programs from here to the end of the world, and they'll do whatever it takes. So, what the Fed and the government are propping most is th- asset a- certain asset owners, and that includes, you know, paper asset owners, in other words, stock owners bondholders people in financial markets the small business down the street that is struggling right now because they can't open that's not in the stock market and that doesn't have access to all these fed support so they'll get their ppp loan with all kinds of harsh conditions on it to keep some people on yet we still have inefficient unemployment blocked unemployment too much too little huge inefficiencies in the way the government seeks to support, and it ends up exacerbating the inequalities we came into the crisis with, both in terms of the impact of the virus itself and then its disparate impact on people like you and me who can work from home and other people who can't.
0: No, I think I think that's a a, a, that's a very interesting and and scary uh, prospect of what's next, because uh, as you say, it's very artificial uh, in terms of of measures that the government has taken and the Fed particularly. So one of the uh, big issues of corporate governance today is the question of the purpose of the corporation, the business roundtable in Uh, August of 2019 uh, issued a new statement saying that no longer is the purpose of the corporation to maximize the profits for the shareholders but now we have to look out for the stakeholders meaning customers and employees and suppliers and the environment and everybody else I mean what do you think about this new statement and how does it change things for corporations
1: well um I am skeptical notice that they the, it's, it's their guide. There was there been pressure on uh, on them uh, and and all of that. But look, if worrying about your customers and your employees is good for business and maximizes shareholder value, then uh, by all means, you want to do that. You want to do that, and um, and you want uh, to attract the best
0: employees,
1: you want to get your customers to like your, uh, your product. And so you, you do that and everybody will be happy. So it's a sort of win, 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 win to all the stakeholders. Uh, but if you uh, have a conflict between some stakeholders, what do you do then? So, you know, just in the last couple of months, there was an interview uh, here at Stanford uh, with uh, Somebody on the board of one of these signatories, a big company that everybody's heard of, let me not maybe mention, I don't know if it's public, but, um, and uh, the person was asked by a Stanford student, MBA student, um, whether, uh, whether, uh, how do they feel, how do they change uh, after signing that statement? Uh, The person stammered for a little bit and then he remembered his line and his line was, we didn't have to change because we always worried about, uh, we were always very concerned with our associates. That's how they call employees uh, and our customers. Mm -hmm. Uh, So never mind that that same company, you know, we can point to uh, all kinds of uh, ways in which it could have done a whole lot better for their employees and for their customers as well. Um, in terms of social distancing, in terms of uh, there is sort of an essential business, okay, it was Walmart, and um, so here, here's here's uh, uh, the point. In Delaware, uh, essentially, they see corporation charters; they cannot really legally act against their shareholders' interests. Now, again, you could say who the shareholder is and what they really want, and we can enter that debate, but. Uh, you know, if you wanted to really care for everybody and have a different uh, mission, uh, you could become a B corporation. Your B corporation, which requires a shareholder vote in existing C corporations, then uh, then you're free to determine your purpose. The rest, the rest let, is just, let, it's is just words.
0: Let me ask you about that. So, if, if everyone is talking about stakeholder capitalism mm-hmm. and essentially becoming B corps, right? Do you see B Corps becoming a bigger uh, entity or economic player? I mean, how do you see that trend?
1: I haven't immersed in B Corps and how many of them there are. I mean, what people say, economists say, so I come from that tribe, is, you know, it's very difficult to have a lot of objective functions and how do you weigh them. By now you're in the space of a politician that needs to balance off all kinds of uh, of, of, of stakeholders uh, warning things that are not always the same. Uh, and so my preferred uh, way to think about these things conceptually is to go back uh, and make the assumptions that um, Milton Friedman made uh, more true than they are. In other words, to make democracy work then, to make governments do their job. Because if you set the rules and, and of course, then you enforce the rules, which is now I'm not sure how you enforce rules well on corporations also, uh, then let let them then, if everybody else is protected by competition, contracts and laws in other words whenever there's an externality you're polluting the environment you're doing you know you're 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 taking advantage of your workers you're endangering excessively all of that the rules the safety rules will will be enforced so that you would have rules of the game akin to you know speed limits for corporations and you will abide by them and you would comply then fine then they're then they are protected by those measures you know they're Creditors are protected by their debt contracts. Employees are protected by all kinds of labor laws and and their contracts and competition in the labor market. You know, customers are protected by, you know, again, a set of consumer protection laws. And then then it's not on the CEOs. So I don't want the CEOs to solve society's problem. I want the government to solve society's problem.
0: Well, let me ask you this question. So you created the Corporations and Society Initiative at Stanford in 2017. What was the premise
1: behind that? So the premise behind that was exactly that we in business schools are kind of assuming things that are false. And that if we were to uh, start thinking about the big picture, that by our own uh, way of educating future managers with these narrow metrics that we teach them under the assumptions that we make for them or we let them assume we are becoming part of the problem. And we have to view, you know, ourselves and society as victims of our own success in educating these managers to do these things that, uh, that we t- tell them are the right things to do. Um, but, you know, by our metrics, you know, it is optimal to hire the lobbyists to to uh, against rules that do protect society. Okay, you you you're faced with enormous dilemmas if you're able as I saw in banking, to confuse the politician about what we're even talking about or about the economics of what we're talking about. So when I wrote my book, it was more like to educate the media people, the policymakers who didn't take basic finance to understand the basics of economics of balance sheet and corporate funding and how it applies it doesn't apply to banks.
0: So so one of the uh, you know interesting trends in governance right mm-hmm. so so we have the business yep. roundtable then the British Academy comes out in November 2019 they say the purpose of business is to profitably solve problems of people and planet and not profit from causing problems you have Larry Fink uh-huh. at BlackRock you know the one of the mm-hmm. largest institutional investors you know sending letters yeah. to the 500 uh, CEOs you have yes, the Davos manifesto of, of 2018 so I'm
1: aware of all these documents yeah
0: you have Elizabeth Warren with the uh, Accountable Capitalism Act. You have at large ESG, right, environmental, ESG, uh, social yeah. governance. So, and you have all these stewardship models in in uh, codes in Europe. I mean, th- there are 24 different stewardship codes redacted since 2016. I mean, this, you know, you have Mark Benioff, know. you know, from Salesforce, uh, Nestle, mm-hmm. other yeah. entities. All, I mean, it's a huge yeah. trend, and and so you know, again, it's not only a, I mean, it's a big yes. shift, but okay. again, so, we go back uh, to, your, to, to your, my same comment. view
1: is that it's all nice and well, but has its limits. So Mark Benioff is a great guy, a bleeding heart guy who congratulates himself for all this charity work. We have relied on private charity. It's all of, you know, the book by Anand Harris. you know, winner takes all. You know, we'll make money and we'll solve your problem. you know, sure, the Gates Foundation or you know whatever, they're doing work and all that. But now we're letting sort of oligarchs solve our problems or corporations. Now there you know corporations can do better or worse, and I'm not against you know ethical corporations and 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 all of that. I just think that it takes a lot of collective actions that oftentimes the good corporations lose out to the bad corporations. So if you're trying to be good, you know, the bad guy will win. And if you read a book, so so take, take a book, just one of many, called Bottle of Lies. I suggest that you read it if you want to worry about your generic drugs, because this book is about the industry of generic drug manufacturers. And it's about the FDA. Now, I was looking at banking regulators, and I thought to myself, okay, now the FDA and obviously the FAA are the gold standard of regulators, right? You never have, and then we have Boeing and Boeing was walking all over the FAA on this max uh, safety. And then you have FDA and DEA allowing FDA being fooled by, uh, you know, Purdue Pharma on these opioids and allowing them to market the opioids and even our best regulatory agencies. So fine, you know, so, oh, you know, Oxycontin. I mean, the harm was unfathomable, okay, that they caused with this marketing of, of Oxycontin and then the distribution of Oxycontin and all of those stuff. So, you know, even on so, and, and for, for physical safe and healthy and health, we have a little more attention to it because it's very visible the sign and we want safe foods and we want safe medicines. But if you look at generic drugs, you have fraudulent companies in China and India protected by their own governments, the FDA unable to monitor the way they produce these drugs. And you have doctors in hospitals noticing that certain generic drugs are not working as they are because the requirements for generic drugs uh, are very, very lax. You have to show kind of an equivalence. It's not really equivalence of the way they work of some kind of chemical compound. And, and so when you read that, you realize and, and, and includes the fact that nonprofits, so when you dig down Nonprofits like, you know, I don't know, Clinton or whatever, you know, they are helping AIDS in Africa and it's all wonderful and all that, except they give the Africa, they literally have dual manufacturing in India and to Africa, they're going to give junk drugs that not only are not working, but they can create, you know, uh, they can create viruses that are, that are, you know, immune to, to antibiotics and all kinds of things like that because they're just really ineffective. So. So, you know, and my point, you had an organization, you had a company starting in Africa that was going to produce actually good farmers for them. And then the cost cutting and then, you know, they couldn't survive against a fraudulent company. So this is what I'm saying. You know what? I don't want, you know, the, the good guys. Uh, If everybody can be good and we can sign in blood that we're all going to, you know, pay respectable salaries and give paid sick leave and all of that versus needing the government to mandate that, I'm all for it. You know, look it. uh, I think it was in the Federalist paper or something that um, Madison said, you know, if men were angels, we wouldn't need government. Okay, so fine. Okay, if everybody's an angel and everybody's Paul Polman and Mark Benioff and they will all, you know, to take care of the homeless and all this other stuff. What was it? We will have a nirvana with no government. The fact of the matter is, we do have some bad guys. We do have some greedy, you know, farmers uh, who are going to charge, you know, five hundred dollars for a life-saving medication. And you know, now you get to government, and then government has Medicare and it pays whatever. And so we have a crazy wasteful healthcare system. Um, In the United States, because we think the markets will solve all problems in all sectors. And so my thing is, if all this energy that's doing good went to making the so so all these people, so Paul Polman, the symbol of corporate social responsibility, Paul Polman, the Unilever guy, okay, he's a really, really, really great guy, admirable guy. And he says he is looking for heroic CEOs. He's on the search for heroic CEOs. Okay, he left Unilever and he wants to make the world better by heroic CEOs. I mean, the assumption is that they want to solve the environment, the climate change, all of that, because governments are not doing it. And what I am saying is, let's ask why. Did you weaken the government? Did you make sure they don't have expertise? They don't have resources to do what they need to do? So... We are by now, so the the breakdown in trust in capitalism in my mind, is related to the breakdown of trust in democracy and in government. So our collective problem is to make the government works for us, work for us. and and then what you would instead have is you have you know you get in political science. So basically, what happened to me professionally, sort of we'll get back to the first question you asked, is I was in a bubble of finance. And even a little bit law and finance, but it was a real bubble. When I stepped out, I realized my discipline is not answering the questions of what's going on in the world. I needed other disciplines. I needed political science. I needed law. I needed uh, you know psychology and sociology and other disciplines to understand what is the challenge that we have, including you know today we're talking about racism and implicit biases, and I've encountered all these things. It's baked into our Uh, you know, psychology or cognition, the way, you know, implicit biases work. We have, you know, blind uh, auditions to orchestras because it's been proven that uh, people have those biases and they can deny it all they want. But when you do experiments, they do, they respond differently to CVs, to the resumes from men and women or uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, there's evidence of these things, and we know in Anyway, so we, you know, if you read now, I just finished reading a book that was recommended by a visitor to my initiative, which I can tell you more about. It's actually quite interesting what happened to the initiative uh, in, 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 in the last two years since it was created. Uh, we hosted Senator Sherrod Brown uh, just in May, a few weeks ago, and he says he recommends to people in the banking committee, obviously he recommended my book, so I was very happy, but he also recommends... Uh, The book that I discovered that became very relevant because it was before all these demonstrations, before George Floyd, I think he came just before that, uh, he recommends the book The Color of the Law. And it's about how the government has segregated America. And it's all these zoning rules and all these covenants that Uh, you can't sell to a Negro and, and all these segregation in ghettos and the zoning of industrial waste and all these little things where you have in their government a reflection of people's biases and obviously and so all this inherent you know racism and discrimination is baked into into the whole system it's in the small and in the large and so i think we have a lot of problems but i think we have to recognize them first and then try to solve them
0: so one of the uh, papers you wrote uh in 2017 is is a skeptical view of finan- financialized yeah. corporate governance. First of all, what do you mean by financialized corporate I mean
1: governance? that the way we end up measuring shareholder value, which is supposed to be sort of what shareholders want as a people. And again, you have to unpack that to ask who are the shareholders, are they institutional investors, are they individuals, what do they want as people, because just stepping on the shareholder first, the shareholder as a person, is wearing a lot of other hats. As a shareholder in, you know, in J P Morgan Chase, I also am a, you know, credit card holder and I'm a depositor in Wells Fargo. In other words, and I'm a citizen, in other words, who doesn't want a financial crisis. You know what I mean? Like, I, you know, I'm getting the dividend on one hand, but I'm also being exposed to risk on the other hand. You know, you're polluting my river and selling me t- T-shirts that are safe from chemicals, but meanwhile, I'm drinking the bad water. In other words, I... I don't want Facebook to addict my kids to, to fake news. You know what I mean? Like, I am a person. What I want is not necessarily that the stock price of this one company is high. So, that's what shareholders want. But the way shareholder success is measured, or corporate success is measured, or managerial success is measured, is financialized metrics. And three of the most common ones are the stock price, uh, the, or stock based compensation, uh, accounting earnings. So the whole short-term, you know, quarterly earnings focus. Okay, so the metric of earnings, which is an accounting thing, how we measure sort of profits, accounting profits, and return on equity sometimes, which is, encourages risk taking, really, not necessarily good, good risk taking. And so when we use the financialized metrics, we're forgetting even to ask what the shareholder wants. Let alone ask wh- whether the result of following of, of acting in the name of these metrics, actually is good for the world. And by the time you ask that last question, the answer is often no. And the answer is no because of the governance issues in the government bodies that are supposed to just make the rules of the game for everybody. In other words, in behind all of this, let the corporations and the people kind of work in markets, is the blindness to the fact that markets... And contracts live in a legal system. And so you're in a law school, so you appreciate that. And so, you know, by now you read a, a book called, you know, Code of Capital, and it's really about how the lawyers are, you know, the source of all of this. The way you write certain contracts, the way abstract assets become so strong, uh, and uh, and the way we adjudicate all kinds of uh, of, of, of situations where the, you know the entire system that holds up you know capitalism is ends up being embedded uh, in, in 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 a whole.
0: Did you just blame all the lawyers to all that's the? That's what
1: that's what <laughs> Katerina Pistor does. She blames lawyers for inequality. Uh,
0: um. Yeah, that that's kind of uh, sad. But um, you know, uh, you know, one question I have is uh, since since finance is 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 at the core of your expertise, one of the pushbacks now is that people saying all these share buybacks are just a way, you know, dividends, and the the company shouldn't be allowed to do this anymore. Uh, you know w- what is your take on this? So,
1: uh, I, I'm glad you asked that question because if you if you press my buttons, it's an, it's on buyback and dividends. I mean, it's it's in banks, but also elsewhere. Because here, look, I, I wrote a paper. I, even though I stepped out of my silo, I still had one of my best papers in the field of finance, published in the Journal of Finance, a theory paper published in 2018, is called the leverage ratchet effect. And leverage ratchet is about how leverage, borrowing, indebtedness is addictive to corporations. Once you have a lot of debt, you want to have more debt. And once you have a lot of debt, you start hating equity because
0: mm-hmm.
1: the existing creditors will take the downside unless they have perfect covenants. And so you always have incentives to harm existing creditors. It's baked into being having debt. So the notion that we teach in finance, again, when we teach the simple-minded, static, you know, what we call Modigliani and Miller, in other words, the basic economics of funding, which is basically somebody's going to bear the risk, but we put a debt, as structure, a capital structure in place, in other words, debt and equity mix, and then the world comes to an end, that doesn't describe living, breathing corporations. It doesn't describe... Uh, the fact that the corporation has to make decisions on both sides of the balance sheet all the time. How much to pay out and to whom? Obviously, they are required to pay out to creditors. Some other contracts on the other side are to suppliers, to employees, you know, et cetera. In other words, you have a lot of a lot of people you owe money to at a given time, okay? The investor class, you know, the people who have financial claims against your corporation, et cetera. And then you have the shareholders. Now, the shareholders are supposed to be the last in line, except Mm -hmm. when they come to take buybacks or dividends, they put themselves ahead of everybody else. And that's why on the dollar or whatever currency of available for something and paid out is where you see the biggest conflict about whose dollar is it. When you take it out of the corporation and pay it to shareholders, it's a clean statement that I am not using it for any other hundred other things I could have used it for. That dollar of earnings, okay? I could have u- used it for any number of other things to back up or be sure I will pay my future obligations. But I took it out. It's safe from all these obligations. So the taking out of the money when there is so much risk in the economy, to me, is entirely evidence of what's wrong. Because the shareholders can wait. Think of Warren Buffett, okay? He's one of our glorified investors. He doesn't pay. I mean, occasionally he does buybacks, but basically he lets his stock price go into the tens of thousands of dollars because he keeps investing. So what is wrong if you are a good investor, if you are a good corporate steward of doing something good with this money, even something neutral with this money, but keeping it on behalf of your shareholders? You can always pay later. Paying is not a problem. It's getting back that's the problem. It's raising again is a problem. And raising, again, good equity money that can be used for whatever, okay? So to my mind, you know, the where you see, you know, financialized corporate governance at its worst is paying mm-hmm. to shareholders in a crisis right now. I think certainly the bank regulators have to put a complete and utter ban on payouts for all the banks. They have access to infinite liquidity money, whatever you call it, from the Fed, and they are benefiting from fees on PPP loans and guarantees. There very little risk on those kinds of things where they're supposed to transmit support from the government to other people in the economy. You know, they can put their hands on $1,200 of check for overdraft. That's ridiculous. You know, people should be able to pay, use it for food if they want to use it for food. I mean, you know, that was something that they literally refused to put a stamp on the check to stop banks from being able to put their hands on it for debt collection. So, you know, you just have to say, okay, you know, the corporation has money in the, in the vault, in reserves, you know, on board money, in profits, whatever. The last thing they should be doing in a crisis is paid out to shareholders. And I understand that these shareholders are pensioners and all of that, but you're not burning the money. You're not burning the money. It's still in your corporation. It will be paid to somebody in the economy. Okay, if you're paying it out to shareholders today, yes, the shareholders. So what we call in, at least in public markets, what we call homemade dividends is just sell some shares. So if I keep the money in, my stock price will reflect that the money is still there, not ex-dividend. It didn't, you know, the money didn't leave the balance sheet. Okay, so the shareholder can sell shares if they need cash. Okay, they still have the money on their name in an index fund. they can sell some of that, so there's no problem at least for public company creating your homemade dividend.
0: people can buy I mean, I think nobody would argue that in times of crisis it's you know board should not issue dividends or or buybacks, but like if you think of one of the private equities uh, pages was always to you know activists would go into a company and remember only. Two or three years ago, they had you know people saying all these companies have hundreds of billions of dollars in cash, and they should we should have these buybacks. So so
1: I agree. So way back when Jensen came and said the eclipse of the public corporation, he was saying that leverage you know leverage buyout at the time that was called leverage buyout instead of private equity. uh, That's the efficient way to manage because you have discipline from shareholder from debt holders because you have to pay out, so they don't waste it. Okay, so the idea was that free cash flows. Managers, shareholder conflict, managers waste it. They forget that it belongs to shareholders. Therefore, they should give it to shareholders so shareholders can pay it out. So I was, I, I, I'm in finance, and I was teaching that. We, we were teaching RJR Nabisco takeover and, and teaching that there is a free cash flow problem and that you want to pay out. Yes. So two things. First of all, we must, absolutely must abolish the corporate uh, tax Interest deductibility. That is the craziest thing. In leverage ratchet paper, this is the reason corporations always want to increase leverage. First order effect is the tax benefit. Now, of course, you might save taxes by going to another jurisdiction. That's another way to evade taxes. But if we want to tax corporations, we should not prefer debt over equity for funding. We should not give that advantage. It's not a business expense, it's a funding expense. There's no reason to prefer debt funding over equity funding. So that's one thing. So if you're doing it to get the tax, which we calculate the tax shield and every corporate finance class. That's crazy. We should just not. That tax code is been booked, has been has no justification ever. You know, uh, and and people have complained about this forever. There's no justification for it, and it just we're stuck with a bad tax code. We should take it away from mortgages as well. Why fund? Why encourage home ownership by just borrowing to buy a house? You know, it completely distortive tax subsidy, and, and there's no reason for that. So we should abolish debt subsidies, okay? And I can go on to talk about student loans and other ways to fund things that we want through debt, okay? So that's one thing. The other thing is, yes, boards, since boards are some of your, your audience, definitely need to make sure uh, that that money is put to at least neutral, if not good use. Sure. This is based on the corporation. Being prudent in at least not taking money away from creditors and other stakeholders, suppliers, or anybody else that they committed to. Okay, so keeping the money there to pay their debts, and uh, and to investing it in you know in, in good projects, long term projects. People complain about short termism, you know, in R. So there have been evidence that there's less R and D that you you know you financialized, you know. Uh, pharmaceuticals or other things, you know, um, and you have businesses that just buy, you know, farmers and jack up their prices and all of that. So, you know, we have a lot of areas where, where, where things are wrong. Competition has been declined in many industries. So again, it's a government problem, antitrust. So you have the great reversal book by Thomas Philippon. And so, you know, antitrust enforcement has, has gone down in various sectors uh, of the economy. And so, uh, yeah, so I, I agree that there could be a waste in corporations, and I think that there shouldn't be a waste, uh, but that um, and that paying out shareholders obviously has to happen when you don't have good investments, but that uh, you shouldn't be you are conflicted with your creditors as a shareholder potentially, uh, unless of course you know I mean if you were going to bankruptcy you would lose a lot to legal fees. But then again, you as a shareholder is out at that point. So shareholders always want to take the upside and leave the downside to others. And they will see it reflected in the cost of borrowing. So there's only so much they can borrow unless you're a bank
0: okay well uh Anat, this this has been a great conversation uh i always enjoy uh talking to you and and you know i know we could have been talking for hours and hours because it's kind of a non-ending yeah. cycle of injustice and and what's going on in governance uh but thank you again for your time and uh i, I look forward to talking to you and thank you everyone for listening and uh we'll okay, talk take soon care. Bye. thank you for tuning in to this boardroom governance podcast If you like this show, please consider subscribing, leaving a review or sharing this podcast with colleagues or friends. You can also subscribe to the Boardroom Governance Newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com.